This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Tim Challey. So he is a theologian, pastor, author, and blogger. And he was a very, very early adopter of the blog format. We talk about that a little bit in the show. And his blog, Challies.com, focuses on theology, social, and cultural commentary, and also book reviews. And he has written a lot of books. He's done a lot of things, but he, his latest book that he released is this book right here called seasons of sorrow. So the, and you know, the subtitle is the pain of loss and the comfort of God. And so whenever I was made aware of Tim, you know, I was made aware of him by some of the people here that, that do some stuff here with undaunted life. And I was like, Oh, I want to look into him. And then I was reached out to by his publisher and this book, it's, it's a brutal book because it's about what he went through in the first year after his son, his 20-year-old son, suddenly passed away. This happened in November of 2020. And so he immediately starts writing because he's a writer. And this book kind of follows the first year of mourning, the the questions he had for himself, the doubts, the tears, the faith, the the development. And we get into all of that in this interview, because in the interview, I obviously talk about kind of how he got his start as, you know, a writer and a pastor and those things. We talk about another book of his called The Visual Theology Guide to the Bible. This guy has a tremendous reverence for the Bible and kind of where he gets that. You know, what are his thoughts around Christians that don't actually read the Bible? Because I know there's a lot of those out there. I've had certainly parts of my life where I just basically haven't read the Bible at all because I've been so busy doing other things and making all kinds of other excuses. But then when we get into seasons of sorrow, we talk about, you know, what it was like whenever he first got the news. And then, you know, how can he be confident that he's going to see his son someday in heaven? Because there's obviously some debate about that, regardless of the circles that we're in. You know, what he did to kind of honor his son uh, whenever he and his wife decided they didn't want to actually view the body after he had passed away. Kind of the inner dialogue of mourners and the things that they go through feeling like, you know, a kid's death is their fault, even if they weren't even there because he was in Canada at the time and his son was in Kentucky whenever this death happened. Then we dig into to, you know, the power of God's sovereignty and how this almost like this entire circumstance really changed him and changed how he viewed God and how he viewed God's sovereignty and those things. And then we talk about some other things within the book. We also talk about uh, Reformed theology and Calvinism a little bit, so that's going to be some red meat for some of you guys out there. We don't get too far into that, but we do get into it. We talk about men's ministry. We talk about what it means to be a godly man, and I really liked his answer, and I thought it was very unique. So really, really interesting interview, guys. This is not one to skip, especially if you've had any type of hurt in your life or if you've lost somebody. This gives you a little bit of a scaffolding with which to build upon if you're going to you know, become better for it and kind of maybe even turn that into your own ministry. And before we get to the interview with Tim, I do want remind you guys about a couple of our sponsors and supporters of the show, and that is the Upper Room and the King's Council. So for any of you entrepreneurs out there, and a lot of soon-to-be entrepreneurs have been reaching out to the guys over there, I want to make sure that you hear about this organization. So this organization, their mission is to create wealth and provision for the purpose of establishing God's covenant on this earth. And they do that by equipping entrepreneurs with all kinds of tools that they need to start, grow, and you know send out their, their business and their products and all the things that they're doing. And one of the great ways that they do that is through a mastermind group called the Upper 
per room. So some of you guys are familiar with mastermind groups. So you'll have a bunch of, you know, uh, movers and shakers in this industry or that industry kind of getting together to kind of give everybody best practices and how they can maybe uh, cross-reference some different things and send some business different places. But a lot of those places aren't gospel-centered. They're certainly not kingdom-centered. But that is one thing that the upper room strikes to do, and they want to make sure that that is a place for bold kingdom leaders to basically develop as an entrepreneur. And so that's what the upper room is. It's very, very customizable to whatever your business is. I've spoken to their group before. If you want some more information on that group, go back to episode 355 of this podcast. That is with the founder of the Upper Room of the King's Council, Riley Meek. It's called The King Entrepreneurship and Money. And on that episode, Riley basically said, hey, if your people want to get in touch with us and see if that we we can help them to be able to equip them to standardize some stuff in their business and to send it to the next level, they need to text Upper Room to 727-472-3860. Again, that is upper room, U-P-P-E-R space, R-O-O-M to 727-472-3860. That will be in the show notes. And when you do that, you will be able to schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek, who is the founder of the Upper Room and the King's Council. And, you know, it would be a tremendous thing for you guys to be able to go through that to see if he can do some things to help you to really aid your business if you're in this growth structure. So again, that's upper room, U-P-P-E-R space, R-O-O-M, to 727-472-3860 to schedule your one-on-one with the founder of the Upper Room and the King's Council, Riley Meek. So guys, again, I really enjoyed my time with Tim Challies today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Tim Challies, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you today. There's an interesting thing about you. You've got a lot of words that someone can use to describe who you are and what you do. So as a way of introduction, you are a theologian, a pastor, an author, and a blogger. And I'm sure there's some other things in there that you would add to a resume sheet or something like that. So I guess now's the time. Let's correct the record. If I got any of those things wrong, let's add some stuff if I miss some stuff. And I guess explain to me, how did you come to what you're doing today? You know, being able to do all those different things. Sure. Yeah. R.C. Sproul would say we're all theologians. So I'm a theologian in that sense, not in the the sense of having formal theological training. Um, I think the others are true. I came to what I'm doing. So I'm I'm a writer and an author, a blogger and an author is what I do. And I came to that by being one of the early adopters of that medium known as blogging way back when. I jumped on it early, just out of interest. Uh, I love to write and had some things I wanted to think about. And uh, the way I think about things is to write about them. And so uh, I got in early, started writing about stuff. Other people started reading what I was writing about stuff, and it grew up from there. Okay. Very good. Now, one of the things as well, uh, the, what I gather is that you're also a reformed person, a reformed theologian or a reformed Christian or something like that. So I think some people will claim that mantra without claiming all the dictates that potentially go with it. Uh, I know that there is a, I mean, there's been a fight going on in my comment section on Instagram for the last week as of the recording of this podcast. One person on the Calvinist side of things, reform side of things, one person on the not, the not side of things, and they're just going to town as if either one of them is going to change their mind. I'm just getting my popcorn watching this nonsense go back and forth. So for you, yeah. I guess, give us just so people can kind of have an idea definitionally, what is a reformed person? And I guess, what how does that apply to you? What do you believe? I guess if we can couch it that way. Sure. Yeah. So uh, reformed and non-reformed people should be able to affirm one another as Christians, people who love the Lord, um, who have so much in common, but just some things that distinguish us. And um, at the same time, we all admit none of us have everything right. So surely some of us are wrong in every way. So I hope we approach these differences um, with humility rather than with fighting and all the rest. Uh, There's enough fighting in the world, enough fighting in the Christian world that we shouldn't be battling out over this stuff. Uh, but instead showing a lot of tolerance, a lot of love. 
Uh, the Reformed faith would be distinguished, or the Reformed understanding of Protestant Christianity would be distinguished by uh, what they call the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. And essentially, it's just um, an understanding of God that begins with his sovereignty, that God is sovereign over all things, ultimately sovereign over election, therefore sovereign over salvation. So it's God himself who chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. And uh, where on the non-reform side, you would want to ground that in human free will. On the reform side, you would tend to ground that in God's own sovereignty. Um, the, the call of the gospel goes out to all men. It's a genuine call. All men should turn to God in repentance and faith, be saved of their sins. And yet only those uh, who God has specifically called, ordained from eternity past, only they will then decide to heed that call and come to faith. So one thing, it's interesting that you you said from the very beginning, and I echo this sentiment, that we need to come to these conversations with humility, uh, not be so disputatious in the ways that we you know basically comport ourselves. But I got to be honest, the people that argue the most are the reform guys with their beards and their cigars, and they just, they can't even let a small difference in opinion on a single Greek word that doesn't even matter to the story go. And if you don't believe every way that they believe, it's not possible for you to be a Christian because I love listening to John MacArthur, but then there are some times when I listen to John MacArthur, I'm like, good Lord, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Is my fruit sweet enough? Do I believe all the right things? I just listened to an hour and a half long sermon where he basically said every single Catholic on the planet is going to hell. And I'm just like, Oh man, like it's just hard for me to go there. So I guess you're you're a much more calm, more measured guy. That that's how you how you at least present yourself. But talk to me a little bit about that because surely you've noticed. Sure, yeah, I, I think there is um, some relationship between uh, people who like to have a good fight and people who hold to the reformed faith. I don't think there's anything in the reformed faith that necessarily call. I mean, it, there's nothing that calls you to fight. Um, but I think there's a sense in which you're a minority in the Christian world and therefore maybe have your back against the wall a little bit. And um, the, the doctrine, I mean, the, the, the theology that Reformed people hold to should be theology that forces you to be humble because it's saying there's nothing in you that would incline you to turn toward God. So if there's any good in you, any, any reason you turn to God in repentance and faith, that's entirely a work of God. So that should be something that brings you on your face in humility before the Lord. Unfortunately, it does cause some people to, to fight it out. And again, I think that's because they sometimes feel backed into the corner. Now, I'd want to distinguish, you mentioned Roman Catholics there. I would want to distinguish mm -hmm. Roman Catholicism from Protestantism in the sense that uh, we as, as Reformed and non-Reformed people agree on some of the fundamentals of the gospel that Roman Catholics would not agree upon. And so Protestantism arose um, at the time of the Reformation as a response to the errors of the Catholic Church, errors that have not been changed. And so um, we can say we're brothers to people who, are, who don't hold to the Reformed faith, may consider themselves Arminian or, or something. Um, but we would not necessarily say that to Roman Catholics because their doctrine is very different. They mm. anathematize much of what we believe. In other words, they say to believe right. in what Protestants believe, especially Reformed Protestants believe, is to, uh, to be anathema, to be, that's a doctrine of hell. And so I think we've got to be careful with who we, who, uh, with the way we relate to those two different groups. I appreciate you going into that. And on my notes here, I literally have a little box where I say, go down the Cal Calvinist rabbit hole if you dare. 
But if, as I look at the rest of my, my interview and all the questions I wanted to ask you, if we have some time at the end, I want to come back there, but I want to put a pin in that for now, because I think there's some other areas that I think would be potentially more important because something that is very clear about your blogging and your writing and anytime that you speak is you don't just read the Bible. You don't just like the Bible. You seemingly have a very a tremendous amount of reverence for the Bible. And you've prov actually provided a resource that I just read and finished here in the last week. It's this, a visual theology guide to the Bible. I mean, it's literally what it sounds like. It is a visual theology. This is like a an infographic, but in book form about the Bible. And my goodness, my respect for how we got the Bible, for the things inside of it. There were things that I thought I understood having been a Christian since I was a teenager that didn't really make sense until I read this book. I, I thought it was a, a fantastic, fantastic read. But, but for you, let's talk about Christians that don't read the Bible. Because part of my contention, and I would love if you would disagree with this or, or go your own way with it, I think we don't read the Bible because it's so easy to read the Bible. Because we can have a stack of them in our office, we can have several apps on our phones, and just never have to actually read them and dig into it. But then the other side, Tim, and then, then I'll let you get in here, is I feel like people think they can't just read the Bible, they have to study it. And as a guy that's very, very busy with young kids, it's like, okay, I have time to read something, but I couldn't study that something. And so I think some people think if they're just reading the regular words of the Bible without commentaries, without cross-referencing, that they're not actually doing the right thing. So just talk to me a little bit about just how, I guess, how you got this appetite for the scriptures, but then how we treat the scriptures in modernity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say a Christian who doesn't read his Bible is like a husband who doesn't communicate with his wife. Um, you're, you're putting yourself on a path that you ought to be concerned about. It's not to say you're not a husband. It's just to say if you continue on that trajectory, you're going to have trouble in your marriage because a marriage is uh, fostered by communication. And a marriage without communication is really no marriage at all. And so um, a, a Christian who's not reading the Bible is a Christian who's not relating to the Lord. He's not listening to God speak, and probably then not speaking to God in prayer. And so there's not much of a relationship there. And that should concern anyone. Um, as you read the Bible, you see how desperately we need the Bible. Um, you, you see people talking about it as food, as life, um, as things, as something that sustains us and builds us up. And uh, we need the word. We need to be in the word. We need to be reading it. We need to be meditating upon it. We need to be basing our lives on it. The fundamental question we should be asking in any situation is, what does the Bible say about this? That whenever we come across any situation, whether it's times of great joy, times of great suffering, times of great questioning, what does the Bible say? And if the Bible says something, why am I not already doing it? And so now I'm not trying to heap guilt on people. And there are times where life is busy and perhaps we don't have a lot of attention to give it. And as you said, I think sometimes we make reading the Bible more than it needs to be. We don't need to be studying it as pastors studying it day by day. There's times to go deep, but there's also times just to, to go wide uh, so to speak, or just to, just to get the Bible in you. And so like Donald Whitney, the theologian, uh, talks about Bible intake as a core Christian discipline. And so in what ways are you taking in the Bible? God can only conform you to the degree that you get that Bible into you. You can only be conformed to the scripture to the degree you encounter the scriptures. And so how are you reading it? How are you getting it into your life? These are key questions we need to be asking. 
Well, if you don't mind me asking you, uh, I'm always curious because I've got a group of guys that we, we kind of do some Bible study stuff uh, together, and there's some stuff we have coming up here soon that will relate to that. And everybody does it differently. And I love hearing how they do it because some people exclusively listen to the Bible. One of my favorite things that I own is I own a copy, uh, all these CDs of Johnny Cash reading the New Testament. I just love hearing him reading the scriptures through his voice. And I'll listen to James Earl Jones read the Bible, but then I'll read it for myself and I'll do different things. But when you're reading the Bible, Bible for study, like when you're studying the Bible, how do you do it? How do you like to do it? What's your style? Right. So I'll, I'll say day by day, I go out for a walk in the morning and I listen to the Bible. So I take it in that mm-hmm. way as my par for the course, standard spiritual discipline. I, I listen and then I pray. Um, and I listen to the whole Bible once a year, sort of just follow the plan. And that's been working for me for years. When I study the Bible, <clears throat> if I'm preaching or teaching, what I tend to do is I tend to copy and paste it um, in the, the version I prefer uh, into a Word document, and then I just print that off. So I take out all the verse markings, as much as the paragraph stuff as makes sense to take out, and I just start with a blank sheet with nothing but the Word on it. And then I try and study that very closely. So get rid of all the notes, all the commentaries, just spend time in the Word. And what I'm really looking for is structure. I'm looking for words that are repeated. I'm looking for metaphors. I'm just trying to to understand it without relying on other people. That builds my skill, but it also means I'm not uh, not relying on other people. There, there's time for that later to go to the commentaries, to go to the study Bible. But I like just to be alone with that printed piece of paper with the Word of God on it and starting there. And so one thing that you talk about in a visual theology, uh, you know, you obviously don't get into how you study the Bible, so I appreciate you getting into that. You just casually mention that in the future, there's going to be a potential for something called like neural downloads. And people have kind of heard of this if you're following the stuff Elon Musk does or whatever, but essentially it's the implantation of information directly into the brains and into the memories of people. And I guess you talk a little bit about that. You have another book here. I just have a stack of your books sitting here called The Next Story. And this really gets into, you know, the digital explosion and what our lives could potentially look like. You know, talk to me a little bit, because again, you just mention it because it you weren't really digging in too far into that, into that book. But gosh, that can seem a little bit dangerous. And are you getting the implantation of the full Bible as we would see it in whatever version that we prefer? Are you also implanting someone's commentary, which is not actually the word of God? I mean, talk to me a little bit about that because I've heard that all before. Now, it would be cool if I could take a pill and all of a sudden be able to speak Spanish. That would be awesome. But I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, maybe we're getting these pills from the Chinese Communist Party and they're putting stuff in our brains that help us, you know, not be able to see the gospel. But take me through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're just looking forward, and the, I, I wrote the book with Josh Byers. He did the illustrations. We're looking forward a little bit and suggesting just some of the things that might be coming. And real, the, the point in all that is to consider what does it mean to even know something? And so if you go back in time, uh, the Bible, for many of the people who first encountered it, it wasn't written. It was transmitted orally to them. So mm-hmm. they never read the Bible. Not only that, they would consider it less than if you read the Bible, they would say to know something, you need to memorize it. You need to get it deep into your mind. And that's when you can say you know something. Um, but now we have the Bible printed or we have it on our devices. That's a whole different way of having the Bible and therefore of knowing the Bible. We can know about the Bible or we can content ourselves to know where to find something in the Bible. But that's different from truly knowing it in almost that, that sense of having intimate knowledge of it. And so as time goes on, what does it mean to have the Bible implanted if that's a thing? And certainly there's people 
uh, working on this, and it may be in the future that you can have the whole the whole Bible available at your recall uh, because it's been somehow planted in you. But would that be knowing it? Would your life, would you be a better Christian? Would you be living in a way that brings more glory to God because you had a, a chip implanted in you or something? I think not. So that just calls us to, to understand what it means to really know something and then to really, um, what is God calling us to do as he calls us to know the word? I think beyond that as well, you can quote a lot of Shakespeare and not live by the dictates of, you know, the tragedy of Julius Caesar. I mean, it's kind of one of those things is like, you can know it, you can quote it, but it's whether or not you've actually accepted it and live your life by it. That, that changes. Uh, one quick thing before we get to your new book is one thing that is brought up constantly, and it's really been popularized, if you can say that, by a guy like Joe Rogan, who has, you know, take your five best friends and my five best friends and all the people we listen to and combine them all. It's still not even a quarter of what Joe Rogan gets to one episode. The guy has the biggest microphone on the planet, and he is so ignorant about the transmission of the scriptural texts to where we have ourselves in modernity. He has convinced an entire swath of the population of the globe that the Bible that we have today is nothing like how it was written down in the original language because he probably, you know, saw some YouTube video 15 years ago and that's just his paradigm. But, you know, even if you're not a Joe Rogan fan, there are a lot of people that have no idea, Tim, how we have the Bible that we have today. And they will say things casually like, yeah, this thing's been translated so many different times and it, it passed through so many different people's hands. We don't even have the originals. So gosh, you know, do we really know that Jesus walked on water and not in water? It's like, we can't actually know. I know today is not like a deep apologetics dive into how we got the scriptures for today, but if you could, could you give us you know, maybe a Spark Notes version, just a 30,000 foot overview of the accuracy of the transmission of the text and how we got them here today? Yeah, that's not my area of expertise, and I'd encourage you to get someone on the show who could really talk about that because it's a fascinating study as you talk about textual criticism, uh, how we did get the Bible, and how we can consider it reliable. And what Joe Rogan is saying, a lot of people think this is original or this is new, and they back Christians into a corner. This has been going on forever. There's no new mm -hmm. arguments. Christians have had to wrestle with this forever. But there is the, the science of textual criticism that is able to look at the vast amounts of fragments of scripture that exist and through them to be able to work backward toward the original text with great, great confidence. And so with where we're at today, there's very, very few um, pieces remaining that are at all disputed. And the ones that are disputed really don't have any bearing on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. So we can have great confidence that because the Bible was copied so much, so often, uh, in so many places, in so many contexts, we can gather all that. We can have great confidence that we have reconstructed it. So it's not a gotcha argument to say that we don't have the originals. No Christian believes we have the original. And, um, nobody's claimed that for hundreds, thousands of years. And that's absolutely fine because we still know what they say. Absolutely. So I appreciate you getting into all that detail. And now it's probably appropriate for us to transition into your new book. So guys, if you're listening to this on time, this book is out. It is called Seasons of Sorrow. And so uh, you've written a lot of different books. This is the only book that you've written that is like this, that is in this vein. And so from your own mouth, from your own words, what is this book about? This book is about uh, a year of my life, a year that began with the very sudden and unexpected death of my son. And uh, that ended precisely one year later on the first anniversary of his death. And in November of 2020, my son, Nick, who's a, a seminary student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he was doing well in life. He had just gotten engaged, was looking forward to getting married in just a few months. And uh, just very suddenly, very unexpectedly, his heart stopped for reasons that we've not been able to surmise. 
Um, doctors have not been able to pin any cause on it, but his heart stopped, he collapsed, and he was gone. And um, that obviously came as a great shock, a great sorrow. And that, that very night, as um, we began to head down south, we live in Canada, he lives in um, he lived in Louisville, Kentucky, so we, we hopped on a plane, we started making our way down, and I started to write, and, and that eventually became a book. And so uh, the first words of the entire book are this, November 4, 2020, in all the years I've been writing, I have never had to type the words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself, my dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. And I mean, I just got to be honest with you, Tim, as, I've, as I read through the book, you know, I just, yeah, I usually lay here in the floor of my studio and read the books and I've got a two-year-old son and a seven-month-old son. And I'm just at different points reading this book. I can't even like see the words on the page because I'm crying and I'm just like, man, this sucks. And I'm just, I'm sad for you. I'm sad for me just reading this. And, you know, I obviously put myself into those crazy situations. I guess that leads me to be like, what is the feedback that you're getting from this book? Because we're going to dig into a lot of the things from the book here in a second. We're still kind of keeping it, you know, 30,000 foot view. But is that the feedback that you're getting? A lot of people are maybe putting themselves in your shoes. Maybe that's helping them change some of the things in their lifestyle to make sure they can spend as much more time with their kids and their family as they as they would. What's the feedback been like? Yeah, so it's been five, six weeks from the time we're recording now, working back to when the book released. So there's not been a tremendous amount of feedback yet, um, just because not as many people have read it yet as, as will eventually be the case. But so far, the feedback has been really positive and really encouraging. And I do think what I've done in the book is allow people in. And so it's a real-time, very heartfelt journey through a year of grief. And um, grieving is a a universal experience. None of us go through life unscathed. None of us uh, get away without grieving somebody, losing somebody. And so I think the universality of it is what people can latch on to so they can see themselves in there. They can see their own children in there. And in that way, I think it's encouraging to some and, and helpful to some, but I do think there's some who just can't can't deal with it. Some have probably just had to put it down because it is too painful uh, because of the way they put themselves in in that picture. And, you know, it's important to say God gives us grace to endure our trials, um, but that happens when we endure the trials. So the more we sort of picture ourselves in something and feel all the emotions of it, that can be helpful to some, but for others, it just overwhelms them. Yeah. And obviously we're gonna spend a whole lot more time talking about the book, but I'll just, as a quick aside and quick commercial guys, this book is in the show notes. I wouldn't let that scare you that you, you're going to potentially feel some emotions when you're reading this. I would find it very difficult to read through a book like this and not feel those emotions. But I would urge all of you guys to lean into those emotions because we all tend to lean into the emotions that can potentially do us harm. Whereas this one I think could push us towards some, some major life changes. There's another quote that's early in the book that I think brings up something interesting and it's this. And so I know in my heart of hearts that I have said goodbye for now and that I've said farewell for, farewell for a while, that Nick has not been sent away, but merely sent on ahead to that place where death is no more, where mourning, pain, and sorrow are gone, where God has already wiped away every tear, and where my son is now waiting safely and patiently for his father to join him. So obviously that's that's a, an ode to what we see in Revelation, uh, where we can all look forward to a day like that. This is where you get a lot of consternation and debate from Christians about the confidence that we will even see our loved ones in heaven, because there are two whole different disparate views on that. Like, no, you know, you're not going to have time. You're going to be worshiping uh, God too much to even have your friends and family there. Other people are like, no, clearly it says that we're going to see them. I've thought about like, if I die in a car accident, my wife gets remarried and you know, they, they're married for 60 years and then everybody dies. Like, 
you know, it's the same thing as like, is she my wife in heaven? Is it his wife in heaven? Like, is it going to be awkward hanging out? Is it being a thruple in heaven? So talk to me a little bit about your confidence there. Cause you do seem pretty confident that that wasn't the last time you saw your son whenever you told him by the last time he flew to Louisville. Right. My, my confidence is not in what I believe about heaven. My confidence is not in my understanding of what the Bible says about heaven. My confidence is in God and in the character of God. And God makes it clear that he is good, that fundamentally he is good, which means he can do no evil, he can wish no evil, he can want no evil, and he'll certainly bring me no evil. God loves me. He's a father. He's inclined to me. And so my confidence is fixed there. And as I look forward to whatever is to come, life beyond the grave, I know that it will be good. Um, I also know that we, we, like Jesus, will have a new body. The Bible makes that clear as well. Um, we, we will truly live on the far side of the grave. We need to distinguish between this intermediate state, we call it, what Nick is experiencing right now, and what he and I will experience after Christ returns, after this world is you know, wrapped up and the, we, we get to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, we, we should distinguish between those things. And it's in the new heavens and new earth that um, we'll receive these new bodies and we will, um, the heavens and earth will be depending how you see it, reconstructed, renewed, refreshed, and we'll live upon them. And so as we think about heaven, it's wrong to think about this permanent existence, uh, sitting on clouds and playing harps and, and simply mm-hmm. worshiping in the sense of um, you know, raising our hands and listening to music. We'll be working. God made us to work. He, he made us to, um, to work, to live upon his earth that he had made. This was the right dwelling place for us. We'll be on earth and we'll be carrying out the kind of work that God gives us to do. So um, I think heaven will be more earthly than we sometimes think, but it will be without any sin, without any sorrow, without any jealousy, even without any marriage. And so whatever you and your wife's next husband um, experience in, in that time, it will be without jealousy. It will be without envy. It will be without marriage, without sex, without all those things that are associated with, with life here. God makes it clear that whatever is to come will be different in that way. Some of these things are temporary for this earth, um, but whatever we experience there will be good no matter and, and perfect no matter what we experienced here. Well, and the funny thing is, you know, when I find myself thinking about heaven, I try to just like stop it. Cause it's like, dude, this, I have no idea. Like, so me imagining it, but every time I imagine, I imagine it as I would imagine a dream state. Cause you're, when you're having dreams, it may seem real, but it's still like your entire world is buffering a little bit. You can't really feel things. You can't really run as fast as you would run in real life and those types of things. So I try to leave the ethereal to the ethereal. Um, now there was one part of the book that was especially difficult to read. And I'm sure it had to be especially difficult to write and then also just to do. But um, you wrote a letter that to your son that was going to be placed in his sweater pocket of the garment that he would be buried in. Right. Uh, and I believe if I remember correctly, uh, y'all decided that you did not want to see your son uh, after he had passed away. You wanted to kind of leave your memory for the last time you saw him when he was alive. So in that you, you included the, the words of an old hymn. I, I won't read the whole thing here, but the end of the old hymn says, good night till then, good night, good night, good night till then. And then you kind of, you know, write your own little uh, note to your son and then kind of put it in there. Just, just walk me through that because I know there's a lot of pain. I, I've, I've gotten the emails and the DMs from people in my audience that have had to kind of deal with that. I've been to a funeral for a baby that lived for one hour. Like it's, there's some, some rough, tough stuff out there, but this is how you chose to get your words out to your son and to honor him without actually seeing him and putting it in his pocket, you know, as it were on, on his actual chest. So kind of walk me through that whole situation. 
Yeah. Um, contextually, if you if you wind back to November third, twenty twenty, well, there's a big election going on in America that day. Um, yeah. My mind was elsewhere, of course, but it was the relatively early days of the pandemic and all that came with it. Vaccines hadn't been yet invented. People were still a little bit nervous. Some of the certainty that's come with time was still very uncertain then. And one of the realities in Canada is once we came back from the United States, we were locked in our house for two weeks. I mean, nobody locked us in. We were told we had to stay in our house for two weeks and not leave. Nobody mm-hmm. could come onto the property, etc. So we were very, very isolated. And it was in that stretch of time we had to make a lot of decisions and one of the decisions we had to make was whether we would as soon as we were released go out and uh, see next remains that had been sent back from america to canada and we chose not to as you said but um we we knew that he was going to be placed in his coffin and that would be his final resting place and so it just felt right to me to to send something other than clothes we had to choose clothes that we would send for him and so, um, yeah, as you said, I, I, I wrote a little letter to him and uh, took some words that I had uh, written to him in a, a letter months prior and rehearsed those, but then found that hymn, that hymn started playing in my mind. And for those who are listening, um, look it up. It's called The Long Good Night by Matthew Smith. He, it's an old hymn, but he adapted it. So The Long Good Night by Matthew Smith, a beautiful hymn. And it's written from the perspective of somebody who is dying, speaking to his loved ones that are remaining behind. And I just thought it was appropriate to, to capture those words um, that include that, that line, good night, good night till then. And uh, that's been a great comfort that the, the thought that um, the Bible speaks often of death being sleep, um, because when we, we die in Christ, we die as Christians, it's a temporary state, not a permanent state. We, we fall asleep knowing we will wake, we die knowing we will rise. So uh, that brings up some interesting things just about what your mind state was at that time, but then also the internal dialogue that you as, as a mourner, as a father have. And so you kind of speak to that here in another quote in the book, and it's this, could it be that Nick's death is God's discipline toward me? Could it be that Nick was some kind of an idol in my life and to loose my grip on him, God took him away? Could this all be my fault? I'm haunted by these thoughts and questions. So obviously, as you're writing this in the book, that's part of your own kind of journal entries as you're going through this first year of mourning. But I'm curious for you, you know, being that it's, you know, almost a a couple of years down the road, do you still struggle with that? Because there are mourners that, that feel that way, that, you know, obviously if you're physically responsible for someone's death, that's different. But when somebody is disjointed from you and not near you and they pass away, I know parents that are like, oh my gosh, I should have fed them different food growing up because in this, you know, they wouldn't have gotten this cancer or they, they make up all these other different scenarios. Just kind of take me, uh, take me through where you're at, I guess, when you wrote that and then how you progressed to where you are today. At that time. Um, so after the funeral, uh, my wife and my two daughters and I, we flew out west in Canada to the Rocky Mountains. We just needed to get away and we needed to be in nature. And, you know, God speaks to us through his word, but God also speaks through through creation. And we just needed to, to be there. We felt a deep need. And so we flew out there. And it was at that time that these questions were really going through my mind, uh, really trying to to work that through. Could it have been something I did? And, you know, I've read a lot of the Puritans, those writers from the 1600s. And, um, you know, they would speak often about these sorts of things, that what, what the Bible says, God chastises the ones he loved, just as you as a father sometimes have to discipline your kids in order to correct their behavior. 
The Bible makes it clear that sometimes God has to discipline us to correct our behavior. If we won't uh, just read the Bible and do what it says, sometimes God has to intervene in some ways. And so I was for a time really haunted by the thought that maybe I had done something and this was God's way of rebuking me for it. But it was um, it was out in nature. I was in the Rocky Mountains. And again, um, this is where the pandemic worked well. I had the Banff National Park pretty much to myself. There was almost nobody there. Oh. I could go to some of the prime spots and be by myself. And so I got up early in the morning, drive out there and just stand in the mountains. And it was there that I came to realize that, no, I've been putting myself in the center of the universe as if something I did, God would take out on my son. That doesn't sound like something God would do. So I had to, to think about the character of God again. And then I had to think about myself. So when you stand before a mountain, it's hard to think great thoughts about yourself, I find. Uh, when you look up at the night sky, it's hard to think that you're the most significant creature in the universe. You realize that mm. this world doesn't revolve around you. And I think that was the understanding I had to come to, that I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of Nick's universe. And so whatever transpired between God and Nick was was between them. And isn't it more likely God took Nick out of love than out of spite or out of punishment? Um, who knows what, I don't know God's reasons. I can speculate a little bit, but we don't know God's reasons. He doesn't owe us answers, but we can trust his character and just believe that he's good. Well, and, and Tim, you used the phrase there, the character of God. And so, you know, this was the part of the book that I highlighted, starred, like, okay, make sure you asked him about this. So I want to read this quote here. Perhaps the reality is that I fear God in a new way and that some kind of innocence has been shattered. Before Nick's death, I understood that God had power, but now I know that he has power. Before, I understood that God would exercise his power in giving what I love, but now I understand that God will also exercise his power in taking what I love. Before, life was easy because God's sovereignty always seemed inclined toward the things that I wanted, but now life is hard because I see that God's sovereignty may also be inclined towards the things I dread, the things I I would never wish for. And so, Tim, when I read that section, I immediately thought of another book by a pastor named Maddie Montgomery out of Tennessee. It's a book called Scary God. And it's about, you know, literally learning about the fear of the Lord and how, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom and those types of attitudes. But some people might read that paragraph, Tim, and get really, really scared. Or just be like, well, that's not the loving God I know. I mean, we talk about the line of Judah a lot on this show because, you know, the Lamb of God's really, really easy to to grasp and you want to just hug the Lamb of God and snuggle with him. The line of Judah kind of scares us a little bit. But I, I just want you to, I don't want to even set it up any more than that. Tell me about your feelings when you wrote that because that for me was one of the most powerful things to try to put myself in the, I guess, the shoes of a mourning father and to have those thoughts. So please give us a little more on that. When we were going through this time, we had to anchor ourselves to something. Something had to be true. So our world had been utterly rocked. It's like you're going through an earthquake and the ground is bouncing and everything around you is turbulent. Um, you know, I'm in the basement here. I would grab a hold of that metal pole and I would hold on to that because that's something that's going to stay fixed. And mm. um, I think in much the same way, um, we needed in our time of, of trauma to, to reach out and grab hold of something that we knew was true. Whatever else was going on in the world, this was true. And what we latched onto was the character of God displayed specifically through his goodness and through his sovereignty. And so we, we just said, we know that God is good. Whatever else is true in this world, whatever else is true of our circumstances, God is good. And God is sovereign. There, there's nothing that happens in this world that God doesn't know about. Nothing that 
uh, in some way hasn't passed through God's hands. Even the evil things that happen in this world, in some way God ordains or permits, depending how you want, what, what language you want to use. Mm-hmm. But Satan doesn't ever get the final victory here in terms of he doesn't sneak around God. He doesn't pull one over on God. Um, God didn't fail to notice some condition in Nick's heart. None of that is true. So we anchored ourselves to God's goodness and sovereignty. And the question was, we were so glad to accept these things when they were inclined to what we wanted anyway. Say, oh, look at the sovereign God. He granted me a lovely son. Or look at the sovereignty of God. He granted me a wife that I love so much. When God takes away, are we still going to say, this God is good and this God is sovereign and we're bowing the knee to him. That's always a question. Will we believe the same things are true about God in our sorrows that we do in our joys? And I think what you're you're talking about there is trying to to link ourselves to something that's more tangible than a feeling because we kind of have this feelings focus in just modern society, but certainly in modern Christianity. And I think that ties to another quote from the book here. I realize I have been trusting too much in my feelings and that I must submit them to facts, to truth, and to what is eminently more trustworthy. My feelings rotate like the earth. My emotions come and go like the seasons, but the truth is as fixed as and constant as the sun. When I focus on what is true, I understand that God is present with me. So with that, Tim, obviously I think, you know, men and men's ministries, they get a bad rap because they're like, they want men to not engage in their feelings. And, you know, if you're going to be a modern man, you need to be a feelings driven man, but it's like feelings are fine, but we shouldn't be driven by them. I think that stoicism, um, has kind of been demonized in modern culture, even though stoicism in and of itself can be an incredibly valuable tool, especially, you know, as you know, someone like a thinker, like Jordan Peterson would say is be the man at your father's funeral that everybody else can attach themselves to independent on for strength. Like just putting yourself in that mindset changes how you feel about feelings, not to just completely disregard them forever. But it's like in this moment, nobody needs extra feelings. We need something that we can rely on. Is that kind of where you feel like you you've gotten to, or or maybe am I putting too much on that? Maybe a little too much. I think what I would say is that we need to subject our feelings to truth. And what we tend to do is the opposite. So we go through this tremendously difficult time We're feeling all the feels. And what we do then is reinterpret our theology on the basis of our feelings. I feel miserable. Therefore, I need to believe that this is true of God. I feel this is God has wronged me in some way. So now I'm going to overturn what I believed about God based on what I'm feeling. Um, Far better. And I think what God calls us to do is to say, I'm going to... um, I I, I will feel grief. I will feel sorrow, but I still need to even anchor my feelings to what is true. And so I I can grieve, but not despair in my, in my loss, because I know that God is good. I know that God is sovereign. I know that Nick loved the Lord. There's no reason for despair in that sense. And so, um, you know, I think stoicism has some attraction to men these days. And I'm, I, you know, I understand where that's coming from as a pushback, but um, to just threads that are going on in society um, and without getting too deep into it, Christians are not stoics. There might be some common truths or something, but uh, we should feel our feelings. And, you know, when Jesus lost his good friend, Lazarus, he stood before the tomb and he wept and he was unashamed, unashamed in his weeping before the tomb of his friend. And that was, a, here's a perfect man living a perfect life and really just pouring out his heart in tears. And uh, we should do the same. But what he didn't do was revoke his his understanding of God or change his theology on the basis of his feelings. I appreciate your your opinion on that and, and some of your thoughts on that. 
one thing about that was interesting as I was reading through the book, Tim, is you could just feel almost this disputatious attitude in your in your soul where you wanted something and then you didn't want it. Uh, you wanted to to leave something there, but you also wanted to pick it up. And one of the times in the book is when you were kind of thinking about the afterlife, which it wouldn't make any sense to a non-Christian is like, why wouldn't a Christian be thinking about the afterlife all the time? It's supposed to be awesome. It's supposed to be just the land of milk and honey and golden roads the entire time, right? But let me read this quote here and, and then we'll back into a question. But I can't deny that I have often looked forward to that day and feared that day with equal measure. I've wanted to be with Christ, but I've been loath to be away from all that is here. I've longed to be face to face with him, but I've been afraid to leave the familiarity of this world for the uncertainty of the next. I've sometimes preferred earth to heaven, sight to faith, here to there. Tim, I've been exactly in that place to where it's like, when Christians seem really, really scared to die, you know, they get the the cancer diagnosis or when they get into a big accident and, you know, they realize that the time is limited, they seem terrified. Part of that might be because they don't know for sure if, if their you know, name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, maybe. Maybe they've been listening to John MacArthur too much. You know, sorry, John MacArthur. But like, maybe there's just something there where they're just like, it's a crisis of faith or maybe it's just they're sad because they're leaving their family behind or maybe there's projects that are going to be left undone and they know they're never going to get done. But talk to me a little bit about like what that's like with you, because I think everyone in our audience to a certain degree feels this. This life can be pretty good. And I think we need to just be honest with that, that we experience many joys and many pleasures. Those of us who have, I think, an honest self-assessment should realize we don't deserve those things. We can sometimes feel very entitled to them. Um, But honestly, we don't deserve all the goodnesses and all the graces we experience in this life, but but we get them and we appreciate them and we come to expect them. And and it's well and good to really enjoy life's pleasures. You read the the book of Ecclesiastes, just read into chapter 11. You'll see here's these, enjoy this, you know, enjoy these pleasures. That's that's a right thing to do. It it Mm -hmm. honors God when we just enjoy a good cup of coffee or when we look long and deep into the eyes of, of the one we love, these are good things. Enjoy our children. Um, but what we can't do is, is fail to, to um, long for the end of all sin, the end of all evil, the end of all pain, sorrow, suffering. And we can get really attached to the things of this earth and then fail to really long for heaven and long for the promises to be fulfilled. And I think that's because we often don't trust that things really will be so much better there, that the the pleasures we experience in this life are actually just pointing us forward to to greater pleasures. And so the the joy and the intimacy of marriage is absolutely wonderful, but even that points to something bigger, something better, something that's gonna bring us more joy and more pleasure. Um, And what I found through through my loss was that it really did help me see this world is is broken and this world has many sorrows and uh, just one example of a sorrow I'll look forward to letting go of the only way I'll ever let go of the sorrow is to die that's the only way I'm, I'm never going to stop being sad I'm never going to stop missing Nick I'm never going to stop longing to see him again but that will come only when I die and so over time I think God um pulls our hands off these things, you know, he, he, he pries our fingers off this world so that we can really look forward to the world to come and, and to his presence and to, to all that he's got stored up for us. I think that's, that's a great word and a great point on that because when you think about the pleasures in this world, there are the big ones that all of us can kind of think about and everybody has that for themselves. But I remember a Matt Chandler sermon way, way back years and years ago uh, before he was canceled, but it was basically like taste buds. 
How awesome is it that God gave us taste buds where we can taste a food and the texture of a food and the, and the temperature of a food and that to like lead to a little, a little bit of happiness inside of our soul, even just for that one minute. And how much more and how much greater is there for us on the other side of this world when taste buds are the small thing that can give people a tremendous amount of pleasure. Um, and the other thing that I think is important as you talk about in your book is you talked about endurance. And the way, well, I'll read this quote. And guys, if you're tired of me reading quotes, I got a couple left. Just follow me here. But here's another quote from the book. And if in the early days we needed strength to keep our heads above water, you're talking about your family here, strength to simply keep us from drowning in sorrow, we now needed endurance, the fortitude to carry a heavy burden through a long journey. So from the beginning of Undaunted Life, Tim, we've talked about the difference between strength and resilience, or I guess you could call it endurance. So strength is something that we're all attracted to. We like the strongman competitions and it's like, oh, where are you spiritually strong or weak? And that's the, the paradigm we think of it as. But I always think about resilience. What is your ability to bounce back? Because even if you're really, really, really strong on one day, well, time, over time, you're, you're going to get weaker, regardless of what you're talking about, unless you work on that and you work on that ability to bounce back. And you kind of are giving a commercial there for endurance or resilience because strength is going to leave you at some point. There's going to be that day when, you know, the meal train has stopped. No one's coming by just to see how you're doing. And it's just you. And if you're depending on strength in that moment, you may be found wanting. So to Talk to me a little bit about when you realize strength is what you had, but what you need now is resilience or endurance. It's enduring the the first few days. The, the strength you need, if it, to use your paradigm here, to get through the first few days is one thing. Um, but there's, as you said, there's such support networks early on. And even then, there's, there's more going on. Your mind is really dulled. You don't feel things normally. Your, your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, everything is just taken over by your grief um but over time things begin to write themselves you, you you sort of discover this new normal but what you realize is you've endured two months now you got another 45 years of this thing to go and um you know you got through the early trauma but now you've got this long path to walk carrying a sorrow and that sorrow as we said before will never go away i'm never not going to be sad that's just impossible i'll never forget nick i'll never stop loving him and that means i've got let's say who knows what the lord's got for me but let's say another 40 years of carrying that that's a different kind of strength i'll need to to endure that over the long haul and um yeah so i think that's what i was pointing to in the book and using the metaphor of carrying watering cans to nick's grave you know it's mm -hmm. one thing to lift up those watering cans from the point where i put the uh, the water in them but it's quite a long walk to his grave. And so carrying those over a long period of time is a different kind of thing and often leaves you very, very tired. And um, what I want to what I want to push myself to do then or what I'm really concerned for is that I would be able to endure this and that uh, I would not lose heart. I would not lose faith. I would not uh, continue to rely on God. I would not, I would can, I just want to, to rely on his grace all the way to the end and, and not give up the fight before that. Well, I appreciate that word. I, I want to end with one quote from the book and then we'll put a wrap on Seasons of Sorrow. And it was this because I feel like it it really summarizes the book. And guys, we're barely scratching the surface on the book. So if some of this stuff is speaking to you, there's a whole lot more here. I'm just going into the stuff that I keyed into. But let me read this quote here. I must allow his death to make me godlier, to make me holier, and then to love and serve all the more. And then quite a bit later in the book, there's another quote. I'm convinced this is a ministry God has called me to the ministry of sorrow, a ministry of faithful suffering. 
And so, Tim, there are people on this planet that when something befalls them, when they lose a loved one, as as is what we're talking about today, it changes their life. And then they become a navel gazer for the rest of their life. They always see the internal side of the sorrow that they're feeling, and they don't try to see how that is supposed to direct them outward. But you literally describe describe this as a ministry of sorrow. So you're coming out of seasons of sorrow because your book is broken down into, you know, fall, winter, spring, summer, right? But now you have a ministry of sorrow which Tim, you could have done without having lost your son. You know enough about the Bible. You know enough about the goodness of God and his ability to provide for his children. But now you are uniquely qualified to speak to somebody that has experienced something in the same way that you have. I know if you had your druthers, you you might rather do something else than that. You might have him called you to being like, you know, race car driver ministry or something cooler than that. But like, Take me through that to where you feel like, no, this isn't just something that happened to me and my family. This is now my new ministry. Okay. So first I want to say ministry. When I'm using that word, I'm primarily thinking in the the local context. And so what God Mm -hmm. calls us to, I hope he calls us to first in the local setting. So I'm not the least bit interested in a, a speaker who's out there on the circuit preaching great sermons, but isn't part of a local church. He's, 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 he's off. We're, we're grounded in the local church. That's the most important thing we'll ever do is care for our family, care for our local church, care for the, the people right around us. So um, what we believe is if God is truly sovereign, then he's shaping his people in a way that serves his purpose. And one of the ways he does that is by calling people to different ministries. He puts people in the, in the church who can preach, people in the church who can sing, people in the church who can serve in all sorts of different ways. And for some people, he fits them for service by taking something, by making them pass through this time of grief. And so because God has, has done that, I think he's now called me, called my wife, called my family to, to he's, he's enabled us to reach out to other people who are going through a sorrowful time. Um, as you said, it's not to say I couldn't do it before, but now I've got, I've got, um, I've got something, I've got experience to draw upon, which makes me more credible, but also just gives me knowledge that I can bring to bear. I know now um, more of what's effective and not effective. So I don't want to say if you've not suffered deeply or useless or anything like that, not at all. You still got the word, you still got the spirit. You can still reach out to people and bring them comfort. But I do think there's people God equips in special ways just by having them pass through something. And I tell you, there was something about having people who had lost a child come alongside of us and love and care for us. That was just such a tremendous blessing and tremendous comfort because they could say things like, you can do this. And we felt that same thing. And that's normal. And that was just such, such a comfort. Uh, can I, I want to say something to your audience. You, you yeah. Before we went on air here, you talked about who your audience is, primarily men. And so I want to say something that I think is a, a, an important message to men, which is um, if you go through a time of deep sorrow, deep trauma, there will be that sense you talked about to just drop out, to become a nasal, navel gazer and to just drop out of the race. But I think what you'll find and what you need to ponder is that when you're most broken is also when you're most needed. So you go through a time like this, you don't get to opt out of being a husband. You don't get to opt out of being a dad and then functioning like one. Your family is going to be in desperate need of your leadership right at that time that your heart is absolutely shattered. And so in that moment, you need to look to God for strength and you need to man up and you need to just lead your family right through the, the valley of the shadow of death. I think that's that's so, so important. 
the worst thing you could do is just become useless to your family in that moment when they most need you. When it's when our countries go to war that we want our, our leaders to be leaders. You know, it's when we need them to lead the most. And it's when your family goes through trauma. That right there is when you need to prove your leadership chops, when you need to, to lead your family to the best of your ability and trusting that God will equip you to do so. That's absolutely a great word. And, and one thing that I would add to that is sometimes something will befall you that you could not have prepared yourself for similar to, I mean, you were looking forward to this long and illustrious life that your son was going to have with his new wife and, and all those different things. This wasn't even on your radar, but for a lot of guys, it's putting in those daily deposits right? Because I don't care what your hobbies are. Cause again, a lot of these men's ministry groups, it's like, okay, you have to camp, you have to hunt, you have to eat beef jerky, you have to have a beard. And it's like, no, those things are, those things are fun. Those are awesome. But those things don't make you a man. I care if you're developing and cultivating spiritual, mental, and physical resilience on a daily basis, because let's say you're, you're in really good shape and, and you're like, Hey, I feel like God wants me to be in, in really good shape. I don't, I don't know why, but I'm going to keep putting in the miles or keep putting in the weight, you know, picking the weight up and putting it back down. And then one day God calls you to something that requires your body to work really, really, really well. And right now, not 90 days from now, when you have a chance to train, not two years from now, after you've gotten a bunch of professional coaching, he needs you now. So that's an example that most of my audience can understand because most of my guys are gym rats, but I think that's absolutely right. Guys, the things that you're doing in your life right now, put the time into the word, put the time into your worship, into your prayer life, put your time into your community, into your family so that you're creating those deposits. You're making those deposits every day because one of these days you may have to go to the bank and take some of it out. And if you don't have a lot in there, you're going to be in trouble. And so, um, before we let you out of here, there's a couple of other things that I did want to bring up, but I really do appreciate you letting us get so far into seasons of sorrow, because as I told you off air, I know that this sucks because I wish you and I didn't know each other. Right. But we know each other because of this book. Right. And so that's just what we're going to do now. We're going to try to bless as many people as possible through this conversation and push them to that. So again, guys, seasons of sorrow, it is in the show notes, but something that you brought up a little bit and you obviously just address uh, the men here on the show. I want to talk a little bit about men's ministry, but but maybe even broaden that out to just overall godly masculinity. Because again, as I've said, there's the cultural caricatures of masculinity, you know, chases women, dips and, you know, plays football and all those different things. And, and that's fine. And then even in the church, a lot of these men's ministries, you wouldn't believe some of the books I get sent that are, they're trying to just redo John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, but they're not nearly as smart, not nearly as poetic. They're just trying to rewrite it in their voice. And I feel like a lot of men's ministries now are missing the mark entirely because they're not basing this masculinity in, in what we see from Jesus in the Bible. When you go up and just ask random men, not in church, you know, who are the manliest men from history? They're going to tell you, you know, Teddy Roosevelt or Jack London or John Wayne, or they're, they're going to give you those kind of culturally masculine guys. They're never going to think Jesus of Nazareth. Part of me thinks that's because of this unbelievable emphasis on the lamb of God and the complete ignoring of the lion of Judah. Men go to church and they feel like they're singing these Jesus is my boyfriend songs. And they don't really get how this guy could possibly clear the temple. Cause he seems like such a, you know, soft and soft spoken guy that would never really make anybody mad. But talk to me a little bit about godly biblical masculinity. Cause I feel like we're losing that. And I'm trying my best to yank people back on the other side. I think what you said about um, culture is important because our, our view of masculinity is shaped by our culture. And the more you travel, the more it messes with what you believe is masculine. So you can go to some countries where the men hold hands with one another as they walk around and that's normal and good and doesn't have any sexual overtones. But I would imagine if you and I were in the same place and they took your hand just to walk around a conference center or something, 
that wouldn't be deemed particularly masculine would probably weird you out a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we need to understand these things are culturally bound. Um, well, what struck me as you were talking is that the Bible calls, um, calls men as elders and pastors. It says nothing about how heavy a load they can lift. It says nothing about how fast or far they can run. It, it describes only character or character and one other thing, which is the desire to do it, the ability to teach. But other than that, it just describes character. So when the Bible describes a man who would be an elder, a man who would be a pastor, it's talking about his character. He's a one woman man. He is uh, you know, committed to the word. He is um, faithful. He is all, all these different things. There's this long list of, of descriptors of that man. And none of them have to do with either the, the cultural form of masculinity, our cultural form, you know, a, a woman chaser. It has nothing to do with John Eldridge's form of masculinity, swinging swords or, you know, living on mountains or whatever. It just calls us to be men of character. And um, that's the Bible's concern. The rest of what you do, again, is culturally bound. You should probably be masculine in ways your culture says says you should be. Um, but that's not the Bible's concern. It's concerned with our character, with how we live before the Lord and how we relate to the people around us. With that in mind, obviously, guys don't hear what Tim's not saying. He's not saying, hey, guys, if you work out, you're not honoring God by any shape or form. Like, obviously, God gave you a body. You need to take care of your body. That includes the things you put into it. That includes your output and all those different things. But I, I would agree with that. And I've certainly struggled with that in, in my lifestyle because I've been an athlete my entire life. And so it's easier to go to those things. It's easier for me to sprint to the end of the parking lot as opposed to digging into some like obscure theologian and trying to figure out what he has for me and how it can elucidate the text even further. And so I think it's a message for me out there about a well-roundedness to your approach to your own godliness and understanding that the character of you and how you operate in your family is way more important than how big your biceps are or how easily you could take someone down. While I think those things are awesome and I think those things are fun and it's good to kind of dedicate yourselves to some of those things to better yourself, to increase your resilience and all of that. Um, to bring it back to the whole reformed and Calvinist thing, and we don't have enough time to really, really dig here. But when I've been in discussions here recently, Tim, with, with people of all stripes, so people that would consider themselves to be Calvinist, some that would consider themselves to be Armenian, some that have no idea what either of those things are, but they, they believe this one thing, there's this consternation. And I have expressed it earlier in this conversation about how do I know that I'm saved? Because if you listen to a reform guy, if you raised your hand at church camp, you're probably going to hell because that wasn't it. You didn't do it right. Or, you know, if you were sprinkled as opposed to dipped in fully immersed and everyone's got their own story of salvation. But even as some people are describing it, there's that hint of doubt that, oh man, I hope I've done it right. I hope I've listened to the right pastors, the right theologians. I hope I've read the right version of the Bible because obviously you can't get anything from the message. It's got to be English Standard Version. It's got to be NASB or whatever. But I guess from your perspective, give a message to the people in my audience and me included where you're like, you're thinking about, am I saved? Like, am I going to be with Jesus someday? Because if I'm not, how can I lead my boys to do that? And, you know, a lot of my guys in my audience feel that way. So I'm asking you, I guess, to pastor me and my audience a little bit here and kind of walk us through that. Yeah, I would say what you're doing as a Christian is you're not looking to yourself. You're looking to Christ. If we have any hope at all, that's hope that's fixed in Christ. So we're looking to him and our hope, our confidence, our faith, our trust, however you want to term it is in Christ. And so if you're thinking about, well, I know I'm a Christian because I do this or because I have done this, it's Mm -hmm. not fixed in the right place. You're looking to Christ. 
and you're saying, Christ has paid for my sins. He's called me to believe in him, and I've done that. Therefore, I can have great confidence that God will be true to his promise. He will save me. He has saved me. He will bring me home. Um, but we do have to examine our lives, and we do have to look and say, so am I living as a Christian? Because maybe we did raise a hand at a youth camp once, and um, but maybe our lives haven't had any substantial change. So we're not living like a Christian, even though we did do make a motion as a Christian. So we are called to examine our lives to see if we're truly in the faith. And I, I think the way to do that is not just to, to do it internally, but to ask people around you. If you're having doubts, you need to talk to men around you, trusted men, pastors, elders, people who have that character and um, you know have been identified by the church as leaders in the church. Talk to them and say, do you see saving faith in me? Uh, we can have other people assess us. Ask your wife. She'll tell you if she sees you living as a Christian. <laughs> and if you're if what you profess to be true matches who you are, she's going to have this close-up view, view of you, and she'll be able to say whether you're a complete hypocrite or whether you're living in consistency with your profession. Because at some point, that profession of faith, what you say you believe, and how you're actually living, those two things need to align. They'll, they'll hopefully come into closer alignment over the course of your life. And so um, just remember, it: we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We're not saved because of the the... Um, the greatness of our faith. We're saved by the existence of our faith, faith of a mustard seed in Christ, in his atoning sacrifice. That's what it takes to save us. And so if your hope is fixed on him, you're saved. You can have great confidence, but do, do then ask people, are you seeing the evidence of that in my life? You can use that phrase, the evidences of grace. You see evidences of grace in my life, evidences that God has saved me and that he's now sanctifying me, that I'm living for his glory. To, to further that, which I super appreciate that. To further that a little bit, I know that there are people that are, okay, they experience God more through their intellect than they would ever at some sort of a worship service or while singing a song. It's just how they're wired or, or who knows. But there are people that would say, Tim, I have the knowledge that the only way that I am saved from eternal damnation is Christ's death on the cross as a propitiation for my sin, right? He paid this the debt that I owed so that I could be close to the Father. You know what I mean? That type of a thing. So they know that. Like, it's an intellectual thing. It's as much for them as knowing that, you know, George Washington was the first president and that they ate eggs and bacon for breakfast that morning. They just know it. But maybe they wouldn't describe it as that they feel that, that they believe it. They're, they're going to describe it as they know it. Maybe I'm not making a whole lot of sense, but I know that people really like splitting hairs here about what they know versus what they actually believe. Because I would say I lean more towards the intellectual side to where it's like, no, I believe that we're not just, you know, uh, humans that used to be chimps that used to be fish that used to be goo. Like I believe in all that in, in the, you know, that the creation story and everything and Jesus dying on the cross and the resurrection, the evidence therein makes the most sense out of all of this. I believe that to be true intellectually. Am I making sense where people kind of lean more towards yeah. the intellectual as opposed to the feel? Yeah. When God saves us, he doesn't overhaul our personality. I mean, we are, some mm -hmm. of us are more intellectual. Some of us are more based on feelings and God makes us different and that's okay. And so if you're an intellectual, it would probably be expected that you'd have more of an intellectual relationship with your faith. If you're more of a feeler, it would make sense mm -hmm. that you would have more of a feeling relationship. That's not to say the feelers have no intellect and vice versa. 
Um, but you shouldn't expect that God will completely overhaul who he has made you to be just because you've come to faith. And so I think if those intellectually minded people are, are coming up with, if they're the ones who are listening to the apologetics podcast and really mm-hmm. grounding their faith in all these evidences and they're clinging to that, that's well and good. Other people have no interest in that. They just say, you know, I heard the gospel. It made sense to me. I believed it. And that's good enough for me. That's fine, too. So uh, I, I don't think it's always that helpful to compare ourselves to other people, to compare our faith to other people's. Uh, what's helpful is to compare ourselves to Christ, to examine, do we really love him? Are we really living for him, living for his glory? And over time, are we becoming more and more conformed to his image? That's that's where we need to be looking. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll leave this last question here. This will be the last question of the day because I know we're running up against time. I've talked with fathers um, and I've talked with people that they would, for the love of God, they would literally never bring this up in church. But when they kind of get out and, and about and then you kind of get asked about this and then they'll kind of open up about that consternation about whether or not children can be saved, like the the age of reason, the age of accountability. And so I know, like, I didn't grow up in any type of faith tradition. I grew up, I, I was born in Oklahoma. So according to my parents, I was a Christian because I was born on the red clay of this great state, right? There was no gospel in our, in our lives. The Bible was in our house, but it had an inch of dust on top of it. But when people see a five-year-old raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm accepting Christ and they get baptized and all that, I got to be honest, I'm a little bit pessimistic about that, a little bit cynical about that. I'm like, but are they though? Like they can barely make it through the day without crapping themselves. Like what, what do they mean? They're, they're, they're accepting Christ. And I know this kind of back into the, the whole reformed Calvinist theology, but I, I, I'm just asking you a lot of questions because you seem adept to be able to answer them. Cause I know people in my audience struggle with that. They struggle with that with their own children, but also with, you know, the children that are part of their children's peer group. Mm -hmm. And they want to be able to celebrate with these people and with these families. But if they, in their true heart of hearts, they're like, man, I just don't know. I would distinguish between what a child can do. I think any child can put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Again, we're told to have faith like children. Uh, God commends that. And it doesn't take great faith. It just takes faith. The existence of faith is plenty. But there's a difference between a child being able to and the church publicly affirming it. So I would say a, a five-year-old can absolutely be a Christian, and we can we can commend that. We can teach that. We should be calling to the children often, put your faith in Jesus, mm-hmm. and that's Good. But I would hesitate to baptize a five-year-old as, as the church's um, way of affirming that person's faith. I would want to wait until they're a little bit older, really until they're that age where they can choose not to. Um, five, most five-year-olds are going to do what their parents said. They're going to believe what their parents says. So I think it's helpful to wait a little bit until they've had the opportunity to rebel or until they've seen enough of the world, tasted a little bit of its pleasures, and then had their faith tested in that way. So that's where, um, absolutely. I believe a five-year-old very much can become a Christian. Um, I think it's a little unusual. Most kids I think become Christians, you know, who are raised in the church probably a little bit later than that. But as a church, I would want to hold off affirming that through baptism or through profession of faith, however your church does that until they're a little bit older, a little bit more mature, a little bit more able to articulate those things. And again, to know that they face some sort of testing. I lied. I have one more question, but it's a quick one and it's related to the last thing just to follow up on that. You know, obviously I I mentioned in this podcast, I went to the funeral for a a baby that lived for about one hour and you know, they're obviously like both of my sons right now, they, they can barely talk, barely walk all those different things. 
I know a lot of parents are worried that if their kids pass away, they, they don't know because they haven't had a chance to accept the gospel. And, and I know you've dug into the scriptures. When I dig, I can't get a really solid answer on this as to kind of what happens to those babies. My, my wife and I technically have four kids because we didn't get to meet two of them because they died while they were in the womb. So what, what, about, what about those souls? Because obviously if you are pro-life, you believe that from the moment of conception, that that is a new, unique uh, image bearer of Christ. What, what could be our comfort that, you know, where our kids are and where their souls are. Yeah, the Bible doesn't speak to it. I don't see the Bible speaking to it with the clarity that some people do. So John MacArthur, um, whom I much admire, he would his phrase is instant heaven. And he really believes that any child anywhere in the world in any circumstance who dies before an age of some sort of reason instantly goes to heaven. I'd like to believe that. I don't see that in the scripture. I don't know anyone who believes the opposite, who would just say all children who die in infancy go to hell. Um, I would line up more with the group that says the Bible doesn't make it clear. So instead of saying definitively, this is what happens, let's just say we know that God is good. We know that God makes no mistakes. And so we can have great comfort in his character. Uh, I think uh, Christian parents especially can have tons of comfort um, that, yeah, I I, I think the, the, the by far majority view of the church would be at least that uh, children who die in infancy and are children of Christian parents are in heaven and you have nothing to fear. Uh, maybe a little bit more um, dispute about what happens to non-Christian children who die. But uh, ultimately, whatever our view, um, whatever our level of certainty or uncertainty, God is good. God makes no mistakes. We can have tremendous comfort in him. Well, Tim, I think that's a great place to leave it. We've gone everywhere in this conversation. I appreciate you letting me go out uh, through all these uh, rabbit trails and things like that. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, nope, all good. Thanks for having me. Tim Challies, thank you for coming on Odonta Life of Man's podcast. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Tim Challies. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So again, just a reminder, text UPPER ROOM to 727-472-3860 to get your application or to actually schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek of the Upper Room and the King's Council. The links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Tim's blog. That is challies.com. I've also got a link to his Amazon page and to a page where you can buy his new book, Seasons of Sorrow. Guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>